it's it's a big song and it's reasonably busy, but it's yeah, yeah a bit slower. I think it's what you said earlier. We need to learn to get loud without getting faster. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. There's a reason why the curse of sin is broken. There's a reason why the darkness runs from light. Praise the King, death Hallelujah, He's alive. Well, good morning. It's fantastic to be here with you all again. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 17? Matthew 17. We are continuing our series here at GBC uh, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus the King Who Saves. Uh, if we haven't met before, uh, my name is Justin. I want to extend my welcome to you this morning as well, if you are new and visiting here with us. I have the privilege of opening God's word with us this morning and preaching from it to proclaim to us the good news of the gospel of Jesus, what it is that he's done for us. And we have another pretty epic passage here this morning, don't we? Uh, we actually, we're having a chuckle during the week that I'm on this hot streak of preaching these big passages about this glorious visions of Jesus, the Son of Man. Uh, a few weeks ago, it was Revelation 1, with John's vision of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus with his white hair and shining brighter than the sun and this sword coming out of his mouth. And now here again in Matthew 17, we read of this incredible and magnificent transfiguration of Jesus during his life and ministry here on earth. Uh, Liam, he rightly said to me the other night that there are some things that we just cannot hear enough of. And this definitely would be one of those things in Scripture. The vision of who Jesus is in all of his glory and that we ought to never lose sight of it. So let us read the passage and then I will pray that God would help us this morning. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son 
with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Let's pray. Gracious Father, please would you help us now to rightly handle and understand and apply your word. Please send your spirit amongst us in powerful and new and fresh ways that he would reveal Jesus to us more clearly this morning. May we leave this room not being the same, but from one degree of glory to another, be transformed into the image of your son so that we would bring you glory all the more. Please soften our hearts and strengthen our minds now so that you might work these things in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, Tony unpacked for us Matthew chapter 16 with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. It's a big moment in the life of the disciples and particularly in Matthew's gospel, isn't it? This is the big moment that the rest of the nation of Israel would have been waiting for. The recognition and the unveiling of the Messiah, the long-awaited promised one who was going to come and rescue them. Matthew himself, he writes this gospel to help us to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He begins in chapter 1, verse 1. It's a long time ago now, but let me remind you that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's claim and Peter's confession is that Jesus is the long-awaited promised one. The one who fulfills God's promise to Abraham that by his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the one who fulfills God's promise to David that he would have a son who would sit on the throne forever. Jesus is the Messiah, the king who saves and Peter and his disciples would be thinking, this, this is it. We've made it. This is the moment where Jesus' life and ministry is now going to change and they're going to begin to take back the land that is rightfully theirs from the Romans. They're getting excited that the kingdom of God would be established again in the land of Israel, that he would cast out their enemies and Jerusalem would be returned to its former glory like the days of Solomon. Surely the disciples are thinking, this, this is it. But to their surprise, and probably to ours as well, in verse 20, Jesus strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, so maybe now is not the time, thinks a slightly disappointed Peter, but it's soon, right? The king, he is here, and soon enough we shall see all these things come to pass. But the surprise turns to shock because of verse 21, doesn't it? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, not to overthrow Rome, not to display his power and authority, not to sit on the throne that is rightfully his, but to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Tony rightfully showed us last week that we must not let these verses just wash over us because we know the end of the story. 
but to let that shock set in for us as well. The Messiah wasn't supposed to come and die. The hero doesn't come to fail in his mission. The Messiah would triumph and conquer and set everything right again, not join again with the suffering of, and misery of the people. Uh, it would be like Winston Churchill going to Auschwitz or a doctor hopping into bed with a contagious and terminally ill patient. It was outrageous and unthinkable. And so Peter takes Jesus aside, not to ask what he means or to clarify or express his confusion and shock, but Peter has the audacity to rebuke Jesus. Rebuke as in to express strong disapproval, to tell him off, to get him to change his mind. Peter rebuked him, which is actually the very same thing that Jesus does to the demon in the passage just after ours as he cast it out. This is no mild reaction from Peter, is it? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. I mean, sure, he's polite. He still addresses him as Lord, but he is adamant. And Matthew here, he uses the strongest form of negation in the Greek. This shall never happen to you. You see, Peter and the disciples expressed in that moment something that you and I wrestle with every single day. And that is the way of weakness. While Jesus was willing to give away his entire kingdom, to humble himself by becoming a man, to humble himself by becoming obedient to death and even death on a cross, Peter and the disciples and you and I can be so fixated on building the kingdoms that we think need to be built that we so easily miss what Jesus actually came to do. For Peter, his version of the Messiah could not possibly include the way of weakness. There is no way that the Messiah would suffer and die. But what about for us? What is our version of Christianity, of following Jesus? What does that look like? Does it include the way of weakness? Does it include denying ourselves and taking up our cross? Does it involve losing our lives for Jesus' sake? I think if you're anything like me, too much our weeks are busy not doing those things. Too much of it is following Jesus in ways that are comfortable and convenient and that gives us better lives. But Jesus says to us, what is the profit? What is the gain of losing everything that truly matters because we are unwilling to walk in the way of weakness? What good is wealth and power and status and comfort when you will lose your soul? And what's Jesus' reasoning for these things? Have a look with me at verse 27 of chapter 16. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man, will come again as the rightful judge to repay each person, to repay me and to repay you according to what we have done. 
This is what Tony showed us last week, isn't it? Jesus who was crucified and Jesus who is magnified. See, the Messiah must suffer. And the Messiah will be glorified when he comes again with his angels in the glory of his Father. Now, you might be wondering at the moment, why has it taken me 10 minutes uh, talking about last week's passage and doing the context of things? Well, I believe that it is crucial for us to understand and to appreciate and to feel the weight and the gravitas of this moment as Jesus is transfigured on the mount in front of Peter, James and John. Because if his disciples are confused, disappointed, shocked to the point of being willing to rebuke Jesus in the light of his teaching them that he must suffer and be killed, then surely these guys need some help, don't they? And what else would comfort and convict them more than a foretaste of seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? Can you imagine what Peter might have been feeling as he walked up that mountain with James and uh, Jesus and John? Doubt, fear, confusion, maybe a bit of anger. He's just been called Satan. Is this really the Messiah? I don't think it's too far-fetched at all to see that the disciples' faith in Jesus at this point was weak and fragile, far from perfect. I mean, even after seeing Jesus transfigured in this moment, Peter will still go on to deny him. The disciples will still go on to be greatly distressed as Jesus continues to teach them that he must suffer and die. The tension for the disciples is, is that they are wondering how Jesus could really be the Messiah. And the transfiguration is going to show in spades how Jesus really is the king who saves. This is confirmation to them that he is the king who must suffer first and be glorified later. And what about for us? You might be feeling like one of the disciples right now. Is Jesus really the Messiah? How could a king, the son of God, suffer so shamefully and still expect me to follow him? It might sound totally ridiculous to you, and that's okay. Because this passage, this sermon this morning, is first and foremost for you. Just like the transfiguration was for Peter, James and John. My assumption, though, is that many of us here this morning probably don't have any deep concerns about whether Jesus is the Messiah. You've given your life to him and you are trying to follow him as faithfully as you can. And what I do think that we struggle with, myself included in this, is that too many moments go by where we do not follow him because the cost is too high. We would prefer to save our life rather than lose it. We would prefer to gain our whole tiny little world that revolves around us at the risk of losing our souls. Too many moments go by where we do not follow him because the cost is too high. Too many moments of unbelief because we forget the goodness of his glory. It's what we all need this morning is for our clarity and our conviction of who Jesus is to be driven deeper in our hearts and our minds. So wherever you are this morning, wherever you're at, 
come to this glorious text with a longing to be captivated by the beauty of the King who saves. So I want to encourage us all this morning by showing us that Jesus is the glorified Son of Man, that he is greater than Moses, and that he is the beloved Son. Let's have a look at verses 1 and 2 again. And after six days, Jesus took with them with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now at this point, we would do well to remember that chapters and verses, they weren't originally part of what Matthew wrote for us. They are helpful, but they can also be unhelpful as we create these divides between chapters and consider them separately. And this is why I took so long in considering the context this morning because I believe it is crucial for us to understand why the transfiguration is helpful for the disciples and for you and me. Uh, Similarly, much confusion has surrounded what Jesus meant when he said in 1628, uh, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what does that mean? That there were some standing amongst the disciples who would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I would argue that the fulfillment of Jesus' words there in 1628 is found here in this moment with the transfiguration on the mount. He links this moment so closely with what has gone before in those few words in 17.1 where he says, and after six days. There doesn't appear to be any other reason for Matthew to include a time frame And I would even think for Matthew's readers that they would be left wondering after 1628, going, well, have we missed the second coming? If some of Jesus' disciples would be alive to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, has he already come? This was the issue that actually plagued uh, plagued the Thessalonian church, we read in one of their letters. And would you believe something that still plagues many churches today as well? But the Son of Man coming in his kingdom is no secret. It's no secret event. The whole world will witness it and will bow down at his coming. So it's reasonable to see then that Peter, James and John, they experience the fulfillment of Jesus' words in this moment. They are seeing a preview of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, coming in his glory. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. What a moment that would have been. I mean, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, in his earthly ministry, traveling miles and miles in the heat and the dirt, would have been far from a glorious sight. I mean, the scriptures even tell us that he was very ordinary, don't they? But in this moment, he becomes extraordinary. He becomes glorious as he is transfigured, transformed. The Greek word literally being metamorphosis as the disciples witness him as the glorious son of man. Not weak, not able to suffer at the hands of any man, not someone to be ashamed of, not someone to be rebuked, but glorious. This is the glory which God the Son shared with the Father before his incarnation. From before time began or before the earth had been formed, it is this glory that our Lord had. 
the Word who was in the beginning with the Father. He became flesh and he dwelt among Peter, James and John and the others. And what does John say in chapter 1 of his Gospel? We've seen his glory. Glory is from the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And surely he's writing of this moment of the transfiguration, isn't he? In this moment, Jesus manifests. He displays the very glory of God. And they see it. And in this moment, every bit of fear and unbelief over the identity of Jesus would have been removed in the disciples, wouldn't it? There is no doubt in this moment who Jesus is. He is the glorious Son of Man. He is the one who will come in his kingdom, in the glory of his Father and with his angels to judge the living and the dead. He is the one who will repay each person according to what he has done. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there's this beautiful song out by City Light at the moment, which I know that uh, Tony himself have been enjoying a lot, and its chorus goes like this. On that day, we will see you shining brighter than the sun. On that day, we will know you as we lift our voices one. Until that day, we will praise you for your never-ending grace. And we will keep on singing on that glorious day. Hallelujah, what a day that will be. What a moment for the disciples. What a moment for us as we get to peer in and to witness this. And don't you long for the fullness of that moment? Can't you just wait to see our King who has saved us in all of his glory and for us to share in that and to be conformed fully and finally into his image? Can you see how this vision of the glorified Son of Man is exactly what we need to find our joy in him, to put our fears at ease, to trust him more, to love the things of this world less, to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross? And to follow him. May we pray every day that we would be gripped by the glorious Son of Man. And may we look forward to that day in hope where we will become like him because we shall see him as he is. Perfect, holy and glorious. Jesus is the glorious Son of Man. And verse 3 continues. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here for you. Uh, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's quite a shift in this moment, isn't it? What is going on here, you might be wondering. Isn't this moment about Jesus? What's Moses and Elijah doing here? Well, both Moses and Elijah, they played significant roles within the history of redemption. That is the history of God saving his people. Uh, Moses was certainly the clearer of the shadows that pointed to the coming Messiah. As he led God's people out of slavery and he brought them God's law and he played a huge part in establishing the new nation and building the tabernacle, which was God's dwelling place among his people. But Moses, he fell short of bringing the people into the promised land, didn't he? Moses wasn't the promised Messiah. 
And similarly, Elijah, he called for massive reform when the people of God had turned to idolatry and did many miraculous signs and wonders as he proclaimed the word of God. But he too was taken away before the people were delivered. They both pointed forward to the coming Messiah in significant ways, but perhaps none more in the way in what they represent in this moment as they point us to Jesus. Moses here representing the law as he brought the law to God's people. And Elijah, who is known as the greatest of all the prophets, they both appear in this moment as another sign to point the disciples and to point us to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The law and the prophets, as summed up in the presence of Moses and Elijah, the whole Old Testament scripture point us to the Messiah. And Moses and Elijah are there in this moment to tell us that the Messiah has indeed come. Which is the second thing to comfort and to convict us about the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, and that is that Jesus here, he is greater than Moses. Uh, This is a common theme that appears uh, quite a lot throughout Matthew's Gospel. And one quick example and reminder uh, is how on the Sermon of the Mount, where Jesus, he goes up to the mountainside and he sits down and he teaches people the word of God to the people of God. And just like Moses did on Mount Sinai. But the great difference there is that Jesus, he's not given words by God, is he? No, he's the very word of God. And so we see Jesus is greater than Moses. And so too do we see here on this high mountain, the glory of God being shone in this Moses-like figure. You see, when Moses, when he was on Mount Sinai and caught a glimpse of the glory of God, his face shone and he had to veil it when he comes back to the people. But the glory of Moses in that moment, that was a reflection, wasn't it? And it was a reflection that didn't last. It faded. But here we have Jesus, who is greater than Moses because he does not simply reflect the glory of God. He is the very glory of God. As great as Moses and Elijah were, Jesus is greater. This is what the transfiguration is showing us, isn't it? That Jesus is the one whom these two mighty men of God were waiting for and were pointing us to. And Peter, who would have been stunned and just fumbling for words, suggests building some tents or literally tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Mark's account of the the transfiguration, he includes the comment that uh, he suggested this because he was terrified and he didn't know what to say. What he failed to realize in this moment is that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they were not to remain in this transfigured state. See, they needed no accommodation because they knew already what Jesus was heading to do. And Luke's account actually tells us that this is what the three of them were talking about. He was heading to Jerusalem to do the very thing which the law and the prophets spoke of, for him to suffer and die. The moment of transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, it makes it clear for us that Jesus is the Messiah who will suffer. And that he is greater than Moses because he is the one whom all the law and the prophets have pointed to. I think that the confidence that this would have brought the disciples is something that we can't always fully comprehend as 21st century Westerners. 
I think we can. We can grow in our appreciation of it more and more as we immerse ourselves in the Old Testament scriptures and as we start to understand of how long the Jewish people suffered for and as they were waiting for their Messiah. But as they saw how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus in a typological way now in Moses and Elijah, but then more and more as they actually preached the risen Lord Jesus, just as we saw last year in the book of Acts, they would have rejoiced that these prophetic words and the shadows and the promises have all come to pass in Jesus. Uh, let's briefly have a look at uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 16 to 21. I have it on the screen here as Peter reflects on this transfiguration moment. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, without getting into the nitty-gritty of this passage, we can see how Peter, he's writing here at the end of his life, he remembers clearly and he looks back on this moment of the transfiguration with fondness, doesn't he? as it confirmed the prophetic words of Scripture about the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. And his testimony of what we have seen and heard of the Lord Jesus, uh, this is what makes, is part of making up our New Testament, doesn't it? The Apostles' eyewitness testimony. And this prophecy of Scripture that he's talking about is what we would call our Old Testament. And these things together give us great confidence and assurance that Jesus is the Messiah. It is all pointing to him. The transfiguration shows us that Jesus is greater than Moses because he is the one whom all of Scripture, whom Moses and Elijah were pointing us to. This moment of Moses and Elijah appearing, it ought to give us great confidence in the Scriptures. We can see Jesus in all of it because all of it is pointing to him. Jesus is greater than Moses. And finally, Jesus is the beloved son. Maybe not. That's a shame. Uh, let's leave it on that. <clears throat> uh, if you have your Bibles there, have a look uh, at verses 5 and 6. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So what exactly is this bright cloud that overshadowed them? I think Matthew intends for it to remind us of several places in the book of Exodus, that this was the same glorious glowing cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness, the same cloud that when Moses was on Mount Sinai and the Lord meets him, in the cloud, the same cloud when the glory of God took up residence in the tabernacle. 
There were some huge moments in the history of the nation of Israel and that happened when this glory cloud appeared. And this is the Lord Almighty speaking. And the disciples, they knew it, didn't they? I mean, remarkably, it wasn't that Jesus transfigured that led them to fall prostrate before him, but it was the glory of the Lord and his voice that terrified them. And they fell on their faces in awe and worship. And who was he speaking to? Uh, perhaps we might think he's speaking to Jesus because uh, his words are identical at what was said in Jesus' baptism. They might sound familiar to you uh, from, that, from Matthew 3. As Jesus came up out of the water, the Spirit of God rested upon him and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But this time on the mountain, there's a command that follows, isn't there? Listen to him. The Lord is speaking to the disciples in this moment, not Jesus. This audible voice of God came for the disciples' benefit, not for Jesus. Because it's Jesus, he's not having the moment of identity crisis, is he? But the disciples who were doubting Jesus' identity. They needed to know that Jesus really is the Messiah and that the Messiah would come to suffer. And the Lord speaks to them out of that cloud to assure them that he is indeed the beloved Son. The Father publicly declares his eternal love for his son, for the good of the disciples, for the good of you and me. And his declaration is affirmation of Jesus' teachings that he must suffer, isn't it? The father is well pleased with the son, yes, because of his eternal and unending love for him, but also because the son came in obedience for the glory of God the father. The Father is well pleased with the Son because the Son came to do what he had planned with the Father before time began. He came in obedience to rescue us by suffering and dying for us. See, Jesus' teachings that he must suffer and die, they displeased Peter, didn't they? But they did not displease the Father. He is the beloved Son and the Father is well pleased with him. Such an incredible confirmation of who Jesus is, isn't it? We can't brush over these things lightly. This is for the disciples' benefit and for ours. See, we need not doubt that Jesus is the Messiah because the Father has declared him to be. We can be assured that Jesus is who he says he is because the Father has openly professed his approval of him. We can rejoice in this truth as we feel the Spirit confirming to us this reality because the Father has revealed it to us just as he did to Peter. Jesus is the beloved Son, the King who saves. And the Father, I think he really nails the application with it, doesn't he? Uh, it's so simple that it almost feels like a cop-out for the preacher of God's word. But again, we cannot skip over it lightly. How ought to we respond to Jesus as, he consider, as we consider this moment of transfiguration? What should we do in the light of seeing Jesus as the glorified Son of Man, as the one who is greater than Moses and who is the beloved Son? We must listen to him. The Father's words from the cloud of glory is not a suggestion or a good idea to us. It's a command. We must listen to him. We must listen to Jesus. And of course, there's so many things. We could rattle a list of things that we ought to listen to Jesus about. But what could the Father be talking about specifically here in this moment for his disciples? 
Surely it's what we've seen last week and just touched on again this morning in chapter 16, isn't it? See, the Father, he designed this event of the transfiguration to assure the disciples, to assure us that Jesus is both a suffering Messiah and the Lord of glory. We must listen to Jesus' words that he had to suffer for our sins and on the third day be raised again. We must listen to Jesus' words that if anyone would come after him, we must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross and we must follow him. The Father has shown us here this morning that these are not additional add-ons to following Jesus. These are not recommendations or something that are for the spiritually elite or for the serious ones to do. No, these are gospel imperatives. These are at the heart of our faith as we place that faith in the suffering Messiah and the Lord of glory. We must listen to Jesus. The transfiguration, what it means for me and for you is that we can embrace the way of weakness now in this life because we know that we will be glorified with Jesus in the next. The transfiguration means for us that we need not be ashamed of the gospel. We need not be ashamed of the Messiah who suffered because he is who he says he is. The transfiguration means for me and you that we can have the strength to deny ourselves as we trust in the King who has saved us to give us all that we need. There is no cost that is too high. There is no obedience that is not worth it. There is no loss in this life that will not be repaid a hundredfold and then some in the life to come. Friends, there is assurance for us in the midst of our denial of ourselves as we walk in the way of weakness. We can be assured because this the Messiah who suffered and died for us has also been shown to be the Lord of glory. And our King, who has come to save, he is for us. He came to us as he did to Peter, James and John. He comes to us in the gospel and he puts his hand on us and he tells us not to be afraid. We can trust him because he came for you and for me. So let us join the disciples in verse 8 as they lift up their eyes and see only Jesus. Let our deepest hope and our truest joy, let it rest on him completely and on nothing else, for he, is alone, he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you are just so good and so kind to us, that you have fully revealed your glory to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this moment where you revealed him as the glorious Son of Man, the one who is greater than Moses, the one who is your beloved Son. Please comfort us with these truths and give us great conviction and assurance in the beauty and majesty and glory of our risen Lord Jesus. And give us faith to trust in him who suffered for us each and every day. May we be willing to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him.
We need your help to do this, Lord. Please seal your word upon our hearts and grant us faith and repentance to live lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.